0: This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156.
1: Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we're going to ask whether the stoppage was too soon in the UFC 249 co-main event between Dominic Cruz and Henry Cejudo. John Nash from Bloody Elbow joins us a little bit later so we can discuss this crazy waiver the UFC made everybody sign. The pay-per-view numbers for UFC 249 are in. They are excellent. I will tell you what they are and what they mean. Plus, here's a question. Why didn't Tony Ferguson wrestle Justin Gaethje? I'll answer it on today's show as well. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays, 1 p.m. East Coast time, right here on SiriusXM Fight Nation Channel 156. Don't forget about the mailbag, LukeThomasShow at gmail.com. All right, let us get into this. The Cruz and Cejudo stoppage. All right, here, let's set everything up, shall we? So we had Eddie Cha on the show yesterday. Second round is happening, and there was this big setup process. We're not going to get into all the details of that. But Cruz ducks down, and he ducks right into the knee, essentially, of Henry Cejudo. As a consequence, it lands, and it lands hard. He goes stumbling back, and his head kind of wobbled as it went back, which is the surefire sign that he's rocked. He was actually kind of making a weird face, too. And then Cejudo jumps on top of him, crushes him with the left hand, and is absolutely banging on him from a tight waist. After that point, now Cruz is not perfectly still, but there's a portion of it where he's not doing a whole lot of moving. Then he kind of moves a little bit more, and right as the referee intervenes, and to be clear, you know he is face first into the canvas. Um, it wasn't like he turned over to like look at Cejudo. But as Keith Peterson, who I think we would all recognize is a very good referee, goes to intervene to stop the fight, just as he does that, you see Cruz put a foot on the ground as he begins to try and step up. Now, Cruz has made the argument that this is a terrible stoppage, and he actually assassinated the character of the referee. Um, Eddie Cha talked about the stoppage. Let me hear that if we have that cut. So if I was in Dom's corner, I'd be a little upset. If I was Dom, I'd definitely be upset. But in all honesty, that, that knee hit him pretty hard. Uh, Like you said, as he went down, that first right hand hit, the left hook hit. And we watched the, uh, we watched the fight after, uh, at the hotel. And it was about eight or nine heavy left hooks, really
0: hard shots. And so if there was a crowd, it probably would have been stopped. Maybe even a couple punches earlier. Hmm. Um, But, uh, it's hard to say, you know, they, they, it seems like every fight Henry gets into, it's a controversy with, uh, TJ Dillashaw when he, when he finished them, oh, it was an early stoppage and another one and
1: another one. But, um, in all honesty, this kid hits hard, man. Um, Henry, Henry can crack with left and right. Um, I thought it was a good stoppage. Now we've played you one side of the story let's get the other here is Cruz officially criticizing Keith Peterson let me hear that cut please
0: sometimes you get hit you know I've been in those positions many many times though and um, you know I had seconds left in the round and uh, I just think that sometimes you know I wish that that there was a way to keep these reps a little bit more responsible sometimes guys smell like alcohol and cigarettes so who knows what he was doing did he really definitely wow at least they drug tested them i know Herb dean is good he's one of the best refs. i immediately when i saw that ref was like man is there a way to like veto a ref and get a new one i wonder that as fighters do we have that choice i'm not sure me neither i wish we did
1: so he essentially says he thought the referee keith peterson smelled of cigarettes and alcohol the cigarette i can believe the alcohol i i don't and Listen, I, I'm not sure what the right answer here is, you know, because I say it all the time. Fighters have no say over any part of their careers. The commission can just string them up and do what they want. And then you see them go in their hat in hand and genuflecting because they have no real ability to have any. There's no real appeals process if the commission screws them. Remember when they tried to ban Nick Diaz for life for marijuana and then they put it down to five years. And the only thing that ended up fixing it was just insane media outrage. Right. I mean, it's like, that's the only method they have is just the media advocating on man fans too, of course, but it's crazy, right? They have no, so all the time I think about that and people are like, well, the players and the fighters should not be able to pick their own referees. I generally agree with that, of course, but you know, if you have if you play in the NFL, there's like this whole developmental process to train and groom and place officiating talent. And then they grade them after every game and every season. And then the better groups that work together and the better referees or umpires, they get picked for better assignments. And the ones that are not good get rotated out. Like there's a much healthier process about identifying talent. Remember a few seasons ago, maybe even maybe longer than that, where the 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 NFL uh, refs and umpires w- went on strike and they had to use the scabs, and the scabs were so bad. Do you guys remember that? It was like shocking how bad they were, right? It's because they do a pretty good job of grooming and 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 placing talent when they need to be, not perfectly, but they do pretty good. There's none of that in MMA. So you just kind of get what you get. Now, Keith Peterson is a very good referee. We, I think this is the first time we've discussed one of his stoppages on this show, to be perfectly honest with you. So I really didn't like the character assassination of Keith Peterson, although I can believe he smokes cigarettes. The guy looks like he was in the member of the Trenchcoat Mafia. But nevertheless, the alcohol thing, I, you know, that's a very, that's a dude, like drinking on the job, that's a serious charge, right? You know? Uh, you can't, I mean, you're going to say something like that. You, you should probably have some proof. Um, okay. Neither here nor there. He had made the argument a couple of different ways, Cruz, which is one been in those positions before, you know, I'm an experienced fighter. Give me a little bit of leeway. Okay. I don't think it's a bad argument. And the other one, which I think is much stronger, which is I'm literally in the process of raising myself. You know, that is the very definition of intelligent defense. I honestly think Cruz did himself a bit of a disservice, which is to say, if you had if he had made the argument about what the argument actually is, which is this guy intervened on seemingly my behalf. Way too early. I'm in the actual process of getting a foot down of standing of changing the conditions of this fight that meets every textbook example of what intelligent defense constitutes. Uh, this was a bad one. And by the way, it's for a world title. This is a bad one. Uh, I, I, I would be I would be sympathetic to that. I don't know if I would agree with it 100%, but I don't think it's I don't think that's necessarily wrong either. And I know a lot of folks want to say, well, how can you know, the fight go on for so long in the main event and get so short uh, in the co-main? Well, there's two different referees, and there's two different applications of the rules. One was a something of a mercy stoppage so in slow motion, and one was an immediate one that was just a different scenario, right? I mean, that, that's, that's the only explanation for it. It's funny. We talked about it with Eddie Cha. Henry Cejudo can crack, but just enough to wobble people and not put them out with one shot. And so it creates these like funky situations where they're scrambling and then refs are forced to make these very difficult calls. I do think this is a better call than what Kevin McDonald made in the Dillashaw and Cejudo fight. I do not think they are equivalent. I think this is a better one than that. And I don't think this is really reviewable. By the way, remember how I started this conversation saying I didn't like that Keith Peterson had his character assassinated. But let's say that we all thought this was a bad stoppage. Cruz would have no recourse with the commission. He could go and say, this was not made according to the rules, and they're going to say to the referee, did you make this in accordance with the rules and fighter safety? All he has to say is, yes, case closed. So this is what I mean when I say fighters getting out there and saying nasty things about the commission members. You know, It has this really uh, unfortunate effect where they then don't want to talk to us, and they don't want to do any media whatsoever, and I completely understand. But the problem is they're so insulated – from the rest of the community they never have to answer to anybody and so what uh, what's a fighter going to do just going to lash out I, I don't i don't like it i don't agree with it but that's the that's what's going to happen they're going to lash out you saw it with Kobe covington doing it to mark goddard didn't like it either thought that stoppage was pretty good too not perfect but but fine But, you know, if they never have this, this is why the commission should rethink this completely. If they never have to answer for anything, then they're going to have to answer for it in a way that they don't like. And that's how we end up here. Now, getting back to the central question here at 877-FIGHT-93, 877-344-4893, what kind of grade would we give the Cruz versus Cejudo stoppage? I don't think anyone would give it an A where like, wow, it's a really great stoppage. I bet some people might give it a B. I think some might give it a C, a D, maybe even an F, depending on one's perspective. I think there is room to look at this and say, yeah, you know, it probably could have been done better. So let me hear from you. What grade would you give the Cruz versus Cejudo stoppage? And what I'm really interested in hearing from you is whether or not you think it happened too early 877 fight 93 877 344 4893 Cobb, if you can for just a second we've been talking about this uh, off air for days at this point did you have an issue with keith peterson stoppage in the co-main event at ufc 249
2: the only thing that slightly bothered me is that there was just two seconds left in the round. To be right. perfectly honest, I never really know how much the referees are really paying attention to how much time is left in a round or if they're just trying to you know protect the fighter. Um, whenever you get dropped, if you're eating shots without getting a hand up and they're unanswered, you're on dicey territory. I, after watching the replay, felt like he was stepping in right as Cruz was getting up. I feel like he made the decision in his head already that he was stepping in. So me... I was okay with the stoppage. It was that last like, "Ah, just let him go two more seconds, and and then get to the end of the round and let's see what happens. Yeah, I mean, here's here's the thing: if if
1: if he had waited one more second, and Cruz's foot goes up, I wonder if he then waits the other second, and then the bell rings. Right? You know what I mean? Like, if he had just seen that sign of life from him by waiting one second longer, he probably would have hesitated enough for the round to expire, and then we go to a third frame. Now. It looked to me like Cejudo was in complete command in this fight. You know, Cruz had a better second round than he did a first, to be clear. Well, minus the stoppage, obviously. But up to that point, he was performing better. But I I really wonder about that. And if you can say that, can you then say that the stoppage... To me, it's not a question of justified, not justified. Because that's really like taking a class pass-fail Right? You're not getting graded on did you get 100 on the test, a 90, an 80, an 85, a 72, a 63, where you're getting sort of very specific. You're just asking, good enough to get by or not good enough to get by? It's good enough to get by in my judgment. If we're grading him on a pass-fail basis, that one passes for me. But if we're grading him more specifically, mm, that's not a perfect stoppage.
2: This week on World of Basketball, former American college stars Jimmy and Billy Barron joined the show, and Billy spoke about the famous, heated Red Star Partizan rivalry.
0: Let's say Partizan has the home court. We'll have to drive to a separate parking lot on the other side of the city. The team will meet there, and then we'll all board the bus with, let's say, four police cars ushering us to the gym. The place is already half full, and it's an hour and a half before the game. I mean, I looked at Marcus Page, who was on Partizan, and I said, What's this? How does this compare to UK? carolina he was like can't because this is nowhere near to carolina, carolina. he's like this is so much crazier
2: new episodes of world of basketball are available every thursday on pandora and every monday on the sirius xm app
1: let's get right to it via the magic of zoom uh he is a reporter for bloody elbow with the vox media property and joins us now on the hotline it is john nash hi john how are you very good luke how are you doing Doing well, sir. Okay, so let's get to it. Um, There's been a, a fair amount of reporting on it. New York Times did some reporting on it. Bloomberg did some reporting on it. For folks who may be a little bit unfamiliar with it, there was a waiver that the fighters, essentially any attendee, and even the media that were required to sign at UFC 249. We'll get to the details in specifics in just a moment. From a broad point of view, what can you tell us about this waiver and why it may have been unusual?
2: Well, I guess what it was is they had what was called an event participation agreement. And everybody that took part in the event, which would be the fighters, the cornermen, the media, they were required to sign this waiver to take part in the event, to show up and uh, stay at the hotel and attend the, the, the fights. Uh, and the waiver, I mean, it, it was, I guess what was different about it, it was it was just very encompassing, it, it, very protective of the UFC. And, and so that was was different. It, it added another layer uh, to already pre-existing contracts for fighters that gave a lot of protections to the UFC regarding, you know, whatever happens, we're not responsible, and, you know, and what can you talk about, and that sort of thing.
1: Okay, so let's get to uh, – we'll talk about the media, which I think is a slightly separate angle here because if you look at the language here, it appears that um, the UFC directed this more towards the fighters than anyone else, and it had just enough – language to encompass others um let's let's start there for just a second what 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 were what were they asking because i'm I'm told there were sort of there's many different clauses but essentially two different prongs right one was a non-disparagement clause but there was something more to it as well so as it relates to fighters essentially what were they facing here
2: Well, the 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 primary goal of it probably was to limit the UFC's uh, responsibilities and liabilities. If You look at the most of the provisions in it, most of the clauses in this this what is I think five six page uh, agreement they sent out. Most of them are covenants and you know representation warranties of the participants. And basically, what it said is all assumption of risk is on the participants. That that uh, even though the UFC they you know they they advertised all the testing and safety they're going to have, and they actually they sent Florida. A, uh, an operational planner that lists all the stuff they're going to do to protect people and stop the spread of COVID. In this document, they tell the, the people attending the participants that the UFC is not going to do anything. There's not going to be any testing. There's not going to be any uh, sanit- you know, uh, safety following the COVID, uh, the CDC protocols for COVID. Uh, no- nothing will be sanitized. Basically nothing's going to be done on the UFC side. You have to accept that you, your heirs, your family, your managers, no one related to you with you, can sue us for that. We have no liability. And, and on top of that, uh, also you're responsible for making sure that you don't come in contact with COVID before the fight, that you don't come in contact with anybody with it four weeks after the the event and that no one that, you know, comes in contact with it. And so all the, all the liability was put on the participants and none was put on the UFC. Is that legal? Uh, I don't, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's on a document, <laughs> I guess I, I I shared it with all, I don't know, five attorneys. And I think, I think the the consensus was a lot of this wouldn't stand up in court, but that's not, I mean, the purpose of having papers, you have to take it to court. So right. it's already right, It already serves its purpose that how many fighters are going to feel, uh, they have the, they have the, they have the funds, they have the ability to go to court with their measly, you know, uh, Lionel Hunt's attorney against UFC's Campbell and Hunter. It's it's right there's an intimidation factor, they're not going to do it. On top of that, in the document, it also has two things I thought was interesting. One is that everything will all all the legal proceedings will take place in Nevada, that's the home court. But also it had a um it had an arbitration clause. And uh, the intent of that, I think more than anything, was to make sure if, if you go to court, it becomes public, you know, becomes public information. But if you go to arbitration, no one ever has to find out about it.
1: Right. Interesting. John Nash joins us here on the Luke Thomas show. So there's this total burden that's placed on them to not get COVID to not expect any COVID testing, but they still did it. So the idea is that, yes, we're going to do COVID testing, but if we weren't too bad, so sad, that's the idea.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, the idea is like, I mean, obviously the UFC is doing it because they, they want to make sure they keep the, the commissions and everybody else happy, but they're telling the fighters, you should have no expectations whatsoever that we're going to do anything. Because if you have expectations, then you can hold us to those.
1: Right. Um, You know what's funny about this? and We we talk about this a little bit. I don't understand what MMA managers do because I talked to another MMA journalist who hit up several managers who had fighters on that card, and all of them said they didn't know anything about it, which, okay, so there's two explanations for that. One, your client didn't tell you much, which is possible, or that you knew and this is just what y'all do, which is rubber stamp everything, The UFC does it it is. I'm not even sure what I'm asking you, except to say, I can't believe this keeps happening.
2: Well, I had two interesting conversations with managers. One of them said I read it and didn't think it was so bad. I looked up what disparagement meant. And it it didn't seem like, you know, and I'm like, well, did you really read it? Did you show it to a lawyer? No. Okay. That's right. There's the problem. (laughs) The other manager though, he was, you know, he's like, listen, I know it's terrible. It's incredibly one-sided. What can we do? There really is no
1: option. Right. So they're kind of stuck here. Yeah. Um, okay. Now, there, another part of it was, if they, what were the penalties if they said something? Actually, you know what? Let's back up a step. Because I looked this up, too. Disparaging. So there was a non-disparagement clause, and Dana had presented it due to initial reporting, I guess, from Steven Espinosa, my boss at Showtime, if I can be um, uh, candid here. And he said, well, disparagement is if you say anything untrue. But I actually looked that up, and that's not the case at all. First of all, it's not what the New York Times reported. And what I looked up was a couple of things. One, most disparagement clauses in any contract, a lot of times it's for... When an employee is leaving and they have a severance package and they want to make sure they don't badmouth the company on the way out the door, that's part of it. And they'll define what the actual terms of disparagement are. So if you don't do these things, you are basically okay. So I wonder if you can weigh in on that about Dana's claims. Is it a function of being true or not? Which, by the way, seems like a very incoherent standard. And then two, what else can you tell us about the penalties that any fighter faced if they went afoul of this? provision.
2: Okay. okay. I'm going to try to remember exactly what the attorneys told me because I'm not, you know, not a legal expert by any means, but I talked to a bunch of people and I have them go very slowly over it for, you know, the simpleton that I am. (laughs) And, and yes, the disparagement clause includes disparagements. You can't, you can't maliciously malign the company and they they can hold you for this, but it also includes a specific part in this, this contract that says, uh, oh, wait, we're okay. Here Uh, Without limiting the generality of the foregoing, in other words, without limiting just to this, it, it could cover stuff beyond this. The principal, the wait, the participant will not suggest or communicate to any person or entity that the activities have been or will be held without appropriate health, safety, or other precautions. So what they're saying is you can't. This this covers something more than just saying something false or malicious. This is if, what if the UFC didn't test? What if you went there and you said, you found out that the, the, the test that they're giving was just, you know, alcohol. And they're just dropping in as a fake, You know, it was a fake. It was a fraudulent test. You right. couldn't say anything based on this, this, uh, non-disparagement clause provision right here.
1: Right. And if you did, they could take your purse as the idea,
2: right? Yeah, and they did. They list for a fighter. They list basically every source of income possible for the event, your purse, your show win bonus, your. Uh, other fight-related bonuses, and even event-based merchandise royalties. All that can be taken away for a fight. So and, I,
1: I and saw – uh, let me ask you this. I saw Lou DiBella on Twitter, and he was asked about it. And he was like, well, in terms of most contracts for fighters and promotions, the commission doesn't get involved, but he did flag this one as saying he'd never seen a commission be like, soup, like okay, a situation where a promoter can just revoke pay. That's kind of weird, right?
2: Yeah. uh, that no, that is that is weird. Uh, but it's not actually not really weird because the weird thing is that in boxing, there, because of the Muhammad Ali uh, Boxing Reform Act, you have to present the full contract to the commissions. In MMA, you don't have to show the commissions your full contract. You don't have to give it to them. It's not just the just required. the bout agreement. Just the bout agreement, basically. The rest of the contract. You can. That's why they have side the side letters. The commissions never see that the UFC uses. This might never been shown to the the commission.
1: Huh, interesting. By the way, uh, we have the audio of Dana going after Espinosa. Let me hear it, please.
2: Steven Espinoza tweeted that you guys have a clause in your contract that could take the fighters' purse away if they say something negative about the company. I just wanted to give you a chance to respond to that.
0: That's not true. First <laughs> of all, th- there's, there's something in the contract you sure? for disparagement. Right. There's a disparagement clause in there that's in all of our contracts. Isn't that creepy-looking little fucker a lawyer?
1: Yes, he went to UCLA Isn't Law, Stanford undergrad.
0: Isn't fucking goofball a lawyer? Does he not know what disparagement means? If you disparage the company, I'm not even a fucking lawyer, and I know the answer to that question. Yeah, it's disparagement. It'd be like if you came out and said, they never tested me. The UFC never tested me for the coronavirus. But if you came out and had something critical to say about the testing that was true, that wouldn't be disparagement.
2: Cool. Uh, tonight it
0: was announced that Amanda Nunez... Fucking law school did he go to.
1: <laughs> UCLA. Um, okay, he says it's in all their contracts. I'm sure it's in all their contracts now, but I don't think a COVID contract existed before COVID.
2: No, no. And actually this, this particular disparagement clause, first of all, they don't have any non disparagement clause in their previous contracts. They have a code of conduct, which is probably the closest thing to it. Yeah, but they don't um, even enforce that. that. They, yeah, well that's a whole, they, they force parts of it, just not the parts that we pay attention to. Oh, so, right. There's other, yeah. I mean, the, 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 I think their focus is less on uh, certain behavior and other behavior. They're much more preoccupied with, but they have a, a and the code of conduct covers other stuff too. Uh, that's, About relating it, well, you can speak about the UFC and about their sponsors and stuff like that. So that that's in there, and they also—I just found out—and this was this hasn't—they've used basically the same one for years and years and years. They updated it last year to include more about uh, include a section more about uh, fighters' behavior code, you know, to to represent the sport. In other words, but it has nothing to do with talking about precautions or talking about uh, talking about whatever protocols are taking. None of the stuff is in there like that. And it has nothing about you losing your purse or about right. your royalties or any of that other stuff. So this is a complete, in fact, reading this, it seems pretty obvious. Whoever wrote this did not write the previous agreements for the UFC because this is someone, it, it seems likely that this was some attorney in California came up with this because there's very specific uh, references to California law in this, this contract. And then they try to apply it to every other state. They just they write the California regulation section of the code, and then they say, oh, any other state does something similar.
1: You know, this is so funny to me, and I saw someone else tweeting about this. I forget who it was, but they made a good point. Maybe it was the Bloomberg reporter. You'll have to forgive me. And they were saying, it's like, look, the UFC was the first one back, and that kind of matters. But there's a lot of mechanisms in play for how they got back where, yeah, you were faster to the finish line but you don't have a union to deal with. Uh, you don't even have reasonably empowered athletes, even without a union, let's say with like boxers who have some degree of protection from federal legislation. It's like, yeah, so you were first to the finish line, but how would you, I mean, I dude, a union would look at this, con- this, this contract and just laugh. It would never happen, right? So to what extent are any of these things that they've done, safety protocol notwithstanding, I mean, th- there's no scale to this, is there?
2: No, I mean, this is a prime example of, and for the antitrust, suit, this is kind of great, this is reinforcement for them, because there's a theory of antitrust of monopsony law, that if a firm comes up with a contract that is purely one-sided, all to their benefit, and nothing is benefit for the person, that the, the employer, the worker that they want to sign it, and everyone still signs it, that there's no, that no one leaves the firm to go somewhere else, but they're all still compelled to sign it, that's evidence of monopsony power. That's evidence that you have such control over the market that you can you can force on people things that they don't want at all, and everyone still accepts it. And I want to go back to one thing Dana said that was not in that clip that I thought was kind of funny. He did point out at the very end of that uh, question, he goes, "Man, you took me by surprise with this question." You know, like he was all surprised; he, knew, he didn't really know anything about it. I'm like, "Did you speak to Kevin Ioli earlier this day about the subject?" He did. I'm just I'm wondering why he was so you know wasn't ready for the question if he would spoke specifically about the subject a few hours earlier.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, let's get to this other part. You have MMA media who were asking about Steven Espinosa's report and they had signed this deal. Now you and I sort of know how the game is played here a little bit, which is to say a lot of these guys who have this job, it's a great job to have and their company is not expecting them to be Seymour Hirsch. In fact, they outright do- like will, will reject it if they try to be. They just want you to attend the scrum, film it, get some hilarious Dana anecdotes and quotes and then throw it up on YouTube and then, you know, make money that's really what they want MMA media coverage to be and so even if you didn't want to do that they're not going to give you a ton of leeway still I wonder what your impression is of media signing this
2: well I actually I don't hold I'm I'm pretty lenient to the guys that go to the event because I think in in MMA media because UFC is such a big force we have this uh, the split in how MMA media works when you're a beat reporter when you show up to the scrum when you show up to the the pressers and the, the event you're really there just to collect all the information that's given and convey it back to the, back to the home base, the office. That's really what your job is to do there because UFC has such power, they can block you out. So you really know that I, I can't push too far when I'm here. I'm just here to collect that, the information and give it to everybody else. So in that case, I can kind of, it's, it's, I, I don't really blame them. I mean, I'm sure some of them just showed up and were kind of surprised. Like here's a way, you know, here's a sign this. So we're not liable. Okay. What else am I going to do? This is my only job. My job is to show up and cover UFC events. For, but for the, the sites, it's it, I, here's a, I guess I'd put it this way. The, the purpose of this document was obviously to serve as a chilling effect, prevent people from talking about it. And I find it very fascinating that all the MMA media sites, all the major sites, none of them broke the story, especially the ones that were there, that had people that had probably signed the document, the agreement. None of them broke the story. I mean, we can infer probably something from that.
1: Right. Uh, Although, and I'll, I'll, I'll admit this too, some candor on this one. Um, I, I was surprised the SPN was as heavy handed with their reporting as they were. They were the ones that had, I think, initially confirmed media had signed it in addition to, uh, other parties. I'll, I'll be honest. I thought that they would get, uh, they would be dissuaded from doing that, but I guess not. Right.
2: Yeah, no, I I give them credit. They did that. I mean, uh, okay. I don't want to the Yahoo story. I don't want to hammer too much, but one thing about the Yahoo story, it seemed pretty, it seemed very much in the UFC's favor when that report came out. But when Mark Romandi reported that the uh, media also signed it, you know, that was, that was telling the truth. That was honest. But the question again, is that, you know, I'm, I know that a lot of media, we media knew about this story before and no one reported on it.
1: Really? Uh, so now there's this other sort of piece here, which is, John Morgan, uh, who attended the event, and we had him on the show last week. I like John a lot. So I guess he he, – I think he acknowledged he had – I mean, here's the other part. If they had come out and said, we signed this thing, here's what John's explanation was. He spoke to Submission Radio, and he had said, listen, uh, we saw that clause too before we signed it, and we said, hey, what does this mean? And that UFC staff was like, you know, do the reporting you got to do. Just don't say anything factually inaccurate. But again, what does that mean? Okay, there was testing versus not testing. That's a fact you can weigh. The testing was bad. Is that a fact or not, right? I mean, that's really a matter of interpretation. How does one do that? Which is why I don't really buy that argument. But his, he essentially took their response to be one of good faith, that they were like, just do your normal thing. This is just in case you say something totally uh, off the wall. Okay, even if that's true, why not disclose it up front, I think is sort of the problem. And also, did you hear what he said, which is uh, the UFC seems to be amending these contracts to some degree, especially as it relates to media.
2: Yeah, I've, I've heard that. I, don't, I haven't seen that yet. Maybe they are. I know uh, the fighters, it doesn't look like the fighters' contracts being amended. So I know that part. Uh, uh, <laughs> Great. Yeah, but uh, no, I mean, listen, I, again, I kind of sympathize with Morgan. I mean, his job is just to report there. I think this was something that if he had sent it back to the corporate and they have the uh, their lawyers that are legal, they're the ones that should have flagged something. Because for Morgan, it's probably like, yeah, it doesn't really change how I do my job. And the UFC, I, I trust the UFC, I know him. But again, it had the chilling effect that no one reported on this story. And on top of that, this agreement, first of all, it doesn't, because it includes affiliates and people related to you, this would actually cover people that work at the site probably, not just you, So you know, possibly. It could be be interpreted that way. And it also doesn't have an end date. So does it, was it just for UFC 249? Does it go forever? Have we just signed over our right to complain about their protocols in perpetuity? And, uh, you know, again, you got to point out that everybody that signed it, none of them really, none of them were the first to break and report on it. They were covering the coverage that other people did.
1: Fair enough. All right. We have to go to break, but John, it's great work. If you want more of his stuff, you can go to bloodyelbow.com or Hey, not the face on Twitter. Very professional handles that you have there in your life there, John, uh, uh, <laughs> it's, just it's, the same great I'm, work. In, go I'm ahead. honest in my, in my advertising. I just fair, yeah. fair enough. I uh, appreciate the, your time and great work. Thank you so much. Thanks, Luke. The Ak and Barak Show
0: is either make the big fights happen, fighters take less money, or stand their ground and wait till we get to a point where their audiences—that might not happen for another year. The big fighters, like AJ, like Canelo, all of these big names—are they willing to wait a year without fighting? Can the networks deal with that? Can the promoters deal with that?
2: And eventually, it's going to come down to the point where you either take it or you leave it. There's no more money for you to get. The Ak and Barak Show, weekdays from noon till three Eastern, only on SiriusXM Fight Nation Channel One. 1- 56
1: let's get to a a big question that someone pitched to me and at first I did not have a good answer but I did a little digging and a little thinking about it and I still don't have the answer but I've got an answer and I think it helps at least a little bit I hope anyway here's the question why didn't Tony Ferguson wrestle Justin Gaethje at UFC 249 now here's why that question is relevant number one it was not going well for him on the feet Okay. You could say that. And it's like, it wasn't like he wrestled a little bit. He didn't wrestle at all. Zero takedowns attempted. Okay. And the second part is uh, hello, Tony is a two time All American out of Grand Valley State. He has a USA wrestling tattoo on the outside of his right calf. He has openly identified as a wrestler. He does knee pound level changes. When he's getting introduced by Bruce Buffer. I mean, wrestling is part of his identity, quite candidly. So, why didn't he go to that? And at first, I was like, Huh. That's actually an interesting question. I don't know. And then I was like, Well, how do I figure this out? Maybe I can't. Because there's always one explanation that you just don't know how to weigh which is was he injured right did he have a hip injury did he have a knee injury did he have a foot injury because by the way you know yes it had to suck to switch things up to go from an opponent who does nothing but wrestle to an opponent who does nothing but strike okay that can't be easy but you were training for a guy who does nothing but wrestle so were you not working on your wrestling now that's possible because maybe Tony was in anticipating a fight with Khabib was just working on his guard and his submissions, right? Maybe that's it. So that's an explanation, but okay. It could be injury. It could be a lot of things, but still it's like nothing. No, I mean, what, what, what's happening here? So then I went to fight metric and I was looking up the numbers and then it immediately occurred to me what the truth of the matter was, or at least partly what could be put, could be a very good explanation. Namely, why didn't Tony wrestle Justin Gaethje at 249? Because Tony doesn't. He doesn't wrestle hardly at all. Here we go. Off the top of your head, Kyle, let's see if you can get this one. Without looking at the numbers, if you, don't, if you know the answer already, then I'm, I'm ruining this. But if you, if you don't, this will be interesting. When was the last time Tony Ferguson was credited with uh, getting a takedown in, in the UFC? Securing one.
2: Dude, I don't, I don't remember seeing him even attempt a takedown in maybe
1: his last five fights i don't think he has but do you remember when he got one the last no. one no i can't yeah i can read you the date you ready for this one february 28th 2015. that is the last time he has secured a takedown in the ultimate fighting championship it has been over five years that's over half his run in the entire organization Let's go through the numbers here because I was just blown away by this. He attempted zero against Justin Gaethje, and of course he got zero. All right, he attempted uh, zero in the opponent before that, which of course was Donald Cerrone, and that means he got none. Against Anthony Pettis, he attempted zero. Against Kevin Lee, which by the way this one was pretty short, he attempted a whopping zero. Against Rafael Dos Anjos. He attempted two, and I went back and I watched him. Both were in round four. You know what they were? One was an Iminari roll, which didn't work, and the other one was this, like, very half-hearted shot that you could tell he was not trying to follow through on. It got RDA to sprawl, and then Ferguson immediately hit him with an uppercut when he stood up. Like, it was clearly designed to just get his hands down so he could pop him in the striking. So not really, like, an effect—not not what you would call— a serious wrestling attempt. So then you go to the Lando Venata fight. All right. How many takedowns did he attempt there? Zero. So then you go to the Edson Barboza fight. How many takedowns did he attempt there? He attempted two. he got neither of them. One of them was just, it was actually Barboza shooting into him. And then he snapped him down and took his back. And that was where he got the, uh, the Darce. And then the one, the other one that he did not secure was the roll. They did not credit him with the uh, takedown for that. Uh, Then you go to the Josh Thompson fight. All right, how many takedowns did he attempt there? One, he didn't get it. It was a trip he tried. He couldn't get it. Again, very half-hearted. Wasn't a full-throated attempt at all. And then before that, you go to the Gleason Tebow fight, and this was a real takedown. He got behind Gleason Tebow, picked him up and dropped him, and then took his back and choked him out, okay? So that was a real takedown. But then you start looking at the rest of his career, Okay, Abel Trujillo, he got one in that fight, which is the one uh, before T-Bow. He attempted only one, and he got it. Before that was the Danny Castillo fight. He got zero takedowns in that one and attempted none, didn't even try. The other one was Katsunori Kakuno, which didn't last but four minutes. He attempted uh, two, only got one of them there, and that was just a bit of a snapdown, another kind of snap down scenario. He got zero against Mike Rio, the opponent before that, didn't even try. He, before that, went to Michael Johnson, zero takedowns in that fight, attempted only one, didn't get close. Eves Edwards, this was his third fight in the UFC for Tony, he did get a takedown, the only one he tried, and it was magnificent. Shot in on a head inside single, picked up the leg and then rotated out and kicked out the post leg to get on top and then secured top position. And by the way, Eves Edwards has good takedown defense and good scrambling. Tony not only got the takedown, but then secured it. He has the skills, he just didn't use it. And then last but not least, or almost, Aaron Riley, zero takedowns. And then in his very first fight, Ramsey Nijem he got two takedowns uh, of three that he attempted. So what is the lesson here? Number one, of late, he hasn't even really tried. Number two, often when he tries, it's not really a takedown attempt. He's just trying to mix things up. Or set up some kind of striking, right? Like a fake kind of uh, attempt to bring your hands down so he can pop you up top. Or it's an Iminari roll, which is extremely low percentage. And again, he's just trying to be crazy and do things differently and blah, blah, blah. What is the commonality between the ramsey Nijem fight and the Eves-Edwards fights? If you go back and you watch, which I did, I went back and I watched all of Tony Ferguson's UFC fights, if you can believe that, I did it. What I noticed was, Ramsey Nidjan was kind of lighting him up a little bit, and then he used the takedown. It was a knee tap to get on top. Now, he was holding his own with Eves Edwards, but um, it was a moment to either kind of seal the round after a back-and-forth striking affair. In other words, he used it against strikers who were giving him some some problems. Now, when he gets hit, the Gaethje fight notwithstanding, he doesn't... He has, he has developed the rest of his striking... Where he gets popped, usually what happens is he gets popped, but then he pops people back, he hurts them, he stumbles them, he begins to loosen up and hit them with leg kicks, elbows, spinning back fists, you know Tony, all the crazy stuff that he does, and he kind of overwhelms them with pace and diversity and sort of unusualness. And the other part you have to consider here is, he had a wrestling background, but he's developed all these other tools, to the point where now, like, what is his game? If I asked you to, traditionally, how does Tony Ferguson win fights? The answer you're going to give me is pretty straightforward, right? You're going to say he marches people down with a diversity and an unusualness of striking. And he might take a couple licks to get in there, but he delivers a heavy shot. He does have well-rounded skills. And he just kind of overwhelms people. He either snatches up a neck with a darse or he just punishes them with you know his strikes. And one way or the other, he usually gets them out of there pretty quickly. That would be a correct assessment. Meaning, over time, you have a fighter who used his wrestling skills to combat sturdy strikers. Now he just walks them down. The part of the wrestling game that he used, he doesn't really need anymore. In the way in which he had developed it. Now, you might say he needed it for the Gaethje fight, and that's true. But he had been so strategically building his game year over year over year over year in such a way as to improve his striking so that he didn't need to rely on the desperation shot or to change the phase of the game that I'm not saying he couldn't do it but if you've not done it for so long that that tactical switch it's going to be hard to make even for somebody who grew up as a wrestler so I'm not saying he couldn't have and again I'm not saying there wasn't some kind of injury that could have explained it But one fact that you just kind of have to accept is, well, why didn't Tony wrestle Justin Gaethje at UFC 249? Because more recently and in general, he doesn't really try. (laughs) It's just not what he does. The other part about it is, you look at his defensive wrestling stats, they're really good. His offensive wrestling stats are not that great. Uh, A lot of times, you saw him wrestle very capably because he was lighting people up and they wanted to take him down. And he was like, no siree, we're not playing that game today. So he would defensively shuck them off to keep the fight standing because he was having so much success. Dude, here's the reality. He had a lot of success with his hands. And as you can see, he can take a shot, and it doesn't really do much to him. Now, not until you've been three, four, five rounds in with him. But most of these fights don't last that long. He's blowing through guys in a round or two, three at most. Dos Anjos lasted, but he was overwhelmed. And so that's really the key here. I'll, I'll, I'll take a shot. You know, I'll, I'll, you can crack me with a good one. But here's what I think is going to happen. I'm just going to overwhelm you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat one or two or three or four of yours, and I'm going to deliver back seven or eight or nine or ten. And I'm going to disfigure you. I'm going to cut you open. I'm going to do it with diversity. I'm going to march you down. I'm going to have you backing up. And he just slowly built this game where that's how he decided he was going to win, you know? It might be like asking somebody, like, why doesn't Nurmagomedov, like, you know, if he lost, let's say he lost in the wrestling department, why wouldn't he strike more? You know, it's sort of like being like, dude, that's just not how he wins. I mean, that's not the reliable formula that got him to this level. So it's kind of interesting, right? Reputationally, Tony Ferguson has is viewed as a guy who has great wrestling. And he does, especially on the defensive end. He absolutely does. And as we saw in the early part of his careers in the Edwards and the Nijim fight and some other ones as well, he's got not only the ability to get traditional takedowns, knee taps, you know, head inside singles, doubles. He's got the ability to secure people on the floor. He took T-Bow's back and choked him out with a rear naked choke. Like he's got these skills. But it just goes to show if you've been investing in, In a particular kind of uh, strategy, a certain way of fighting year over year, and you've had success with it as you've got better with it, that's going to be hard to undo late. It seems that way. I, I mean, we went through how many fights where he hadn't even attempted one. Hadn't secured one since 2015. It's just not what he does. It's just not what he does. So that leads me to conclude if he was going to fight Nurmagomedov, right, had he won, he was going to live or die on his submissions or the ability to cut up Habib uh, on the floor. Now, that may have led to certain other moments on the feet after that, but that really is, is it, that he was going to live or die with that. Because the one thing I noticed was other guys would take him down and he would just start playing guard right away, you know. He wasn't really trying to get back to his feet. Now, you could say that's the right strategy for Nurmagomedov. You could say that's the wrong one. <sighs> I hate to say, I guess we'll never know. I mean, that's not quite true. We, we, we might find out at some point. But the uh, long story short here is reputationally, because he is so good at it and because that's his background, it's almost like his bio, you associate Tony with wrestling. But what he has shown is that's just not his preference. And it's not even really, you know, you are what your habits are. And if you get out of a certain habit, um, switching it up can make it difficult. Now, uh, last thing I'll say, of course, is just one more reminder. There could be another factor we're just not considering here. There could be several factors we're not considering here. So just keep that in mind. But the data is interesting on that. You think of Tony one way, but the numbers kind of tell you it's a little bit different.
2: Talking to the biggest names in pro wrestling,
1: this is Busted Open. WWE champion, Drew McIntyre. When I got handed the title, I stared at it. Nothing could have been more real than that moment when I played the montage in my head of being
2: a kid and my mom and Nana giving me the money to travel 12 hours to learn to wrestle and the sacrifices my wife's put up with, especially during my independent time and everything that I've been through leading to that moment.
1: It was unbelievable.
2: Being real is the only way you can put it. It was very real. Monday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation.
1: Let's get to this part. So the early numbers for the UFC pay-per-view, UFC 249, are in. According to John Orand of the Sports Business Journal, the pay-per-view pulled in a whopping 700,000 pay-per-view buys. Let me just state this as plainly as I can. That is not just a good number. That is not merely a very good number. That is an outright excellent number that is an astonishing number to be perfectly honest with you okay why is that astonishing first of all if it's 700,000 that would put it in the top 30 pay-per-views all time right I mean 700,000 is what GSP would pull or Silva in his prime I mean that that's the level of you know I mean yes they pulled higher than that at times 800,000 a million but that's what they're good for 700,000 is very high, okay? Number one. I mean, understand this. No other MMA promotion has ever gotten over (laughs) 100,000. Right? Just consider that for a second. Okay, number one. Number two, why is that also impressive? Well, because Gaethje and Ferguson were your headliners. Remember, the pay-per-view business is a star-driven business. People respond to not necessarily the quality of the fight, although that can play a role, but the predominant factor that drives purchasing decisions is the star power of the headliners. And to you and I, Gechi is a big deal. To you and I, Tony is a big deal. And I think Tony had um, some larger visibility with the casual public. But I did a lot of radio interviews yesterday, uh, last week and then even uh, yesterday reacting to it. And I can't tell you how many people I t- discussed had no idea who the headliners were. They were, they were asking me to tell them. They're like, who's this Justin Gaethje guy? They didn't know. So to have two people who were not proven at a bare minimum, proven pay-per-view headlining, you know, box office draws, to pull seven hundred thousand is absurdly good. Totally ridiculous. Then you add in another factor, which is that there's thirty million Americans out of work. I mean, we're in the middle of a you know once in a century kind of event, and. A lot of people don't have disposable income, and they still did that. That is beyond impressive. So, uh, if you do some back of the envelope math, and you had in, you add in, you know, overseas pay-per-views. Uh, I think John Nash had wrote this: hundred thousand overseas pay-per-views, because the predominant market for pay-per-view is North America. You know, you're talking about a forty million dollar event for the UFC, and then on top of that, however many more subscriptions they drove. To ESPN Plus, which they have to get in order to get the pay-per-view. Now, there's a couple things missing. There was no gate, right? There was no one in attendance. There's a second part missing, which actually is kind of big. There were no bars or restaurants showing the event, so that's going to hurt them. That's two major losses of revenue that um, you know can have a big impact. Let's put it, let's put it that way. But because they didn't have a Conor McGregor and they didn't have a Habib and they didn't have a somebody else they had fairly low costs the highest paid person on the card was Tony at 500 grand I mean Jeremy Stevens made 46 grand for that 46 grand which by the way is criminal to be perfectly honest with you but okay so they had low cost relative to that now the other part to that story is they also had all this extra cost as it relates to COVID-19 safety protocol so You know, in the end, how much money did they make is way too difficult to tell, but I'll say this, 700,000 is far above what I thought even the high end was possible. It is an astonishingly good number, and that will make up a big difference in costs over what I think they were expecting, and they have to be pleased. I guarantee Disney and ESPN is thrilled, and I guarantee you UFC is thrilled. The question that I still have in my mind about this is, that number is just incontestably great. You can't say anything bad about it. I just wonder how repeatable it is. In other words, they go out and put on this event, and it has a lot of public visibility. There was a lot of criticism of it. There was a lot of attention on it. It was positioned in many major and mainstream outlets as the first sport back, and they did stack that card. Okay. They're going to have difficulty keeping stacked cards even though we've been off because they're not going to be able for the time being to bring in all the same kinds of international talent. In fact, they had, uh, they had advertised who's going to be at UFC 250. Now, this card is not complete uh, that I'm aware of, and UFC 250 is set to take place June 6th. What they have so far is Amanda Nunes versus Felicia Spencer, which is fine. Juicier Formiga versus Alex Perez. Devin Clark versus Alonzo Menafield Gerald Mearshart versus Ian Heinish, and then Charles Byrd versus uh, Maki Patolo. These are fine fights in their own right, but none of them is pay-per-view worthy except for the main event. And even then, that's not she's not a dr- tremendous draw. So there's a question that I have in my mind, which is, if you can't get access to the international talents and you're still running pay-per-view, to what extent will that diminish future returns? And The other major question I have in my mind is to what extent were the results this time a function of the uniqueness? Okay, you were the first sport back for UFC 249. That was interesting and curious. People people were bored. Maybe they'll keep tuning in until there are other sports and that could be some time. But I wonder how much it's a first-time effect versus something that will continue. My hunch is that as long as they're out in front of the field where there's no other sports, uh, they'll be buoyed a little bit. But I also tend to think that was a bit of one-time magic that at the the scale at which we saw probably won't be repeated. I mean, that was very much catching lightning in a bottle. It's going to be hard to get a lot of that back, I I suspect. Or maybe not, right? I mean, I didn't think they were going to pull 700K, and they did. And that is a whopping number, man. That is, I mean, that's a grand slam. That's a grand slam in the bottom of the ninth. No doubt about it. And you can be upset that they had the event, and you can say the safety protocol was bad, or whatever, you know, whatever criticisms you want to make of them undertaking this effort. That, that, that's separate at, for the moment from, you know, was this a box office success in terms of what they were selling? Incontestably.
0: Thanks for listening. Catch The Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.